This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We had an episode out today with Frank Turner talking about England Keep My Bones. He was doing the 10th anniversary issue of it. And we spoke a little bit in that about how the, the manner and the way in which his Englishness manifests itself in his songwriting and where he sees his national identity in his music, which is interesting when I think about you because I'd presumed you to be an American artist for the couple of years I've been listening to you. And it was only when doing the research for this that I discovered you were British. So I'm intrigued by where you kind of see your Britishness in your songwriting, if you see it in there at all. Mm. I mean, definitely. Well, I guess it depends how far back you want to go because, I mean, my first band that I had when I was 16, Cajun Dance Party, we were like really, really, really British. Like, um, I don't know if you, if you come across us, but you have to be, <laughs> I sound like such an old man now, but you, you have to be from a certain time. Um, and yeah, that time was 2008. And Good year. <laughs> it was a good year. Um, but yeah, like we, we were really... Um, English, obviously, like, I mean, well, yeah, Daniel, like, sung in an English accent and, you know, we, our music was very inspired by, like, English influences. Not that I had any kind of creative role really at all in that band um, other than bass player, but but I was listening to a lot of English music myself. I was, like, really into Joy Division and New Order heavily at the time. And then... Yeah, towards the end of Cajun Dance Party, that was like a kind of revelation. I had a revelation of new American bands that I discovered. And it was kind of almost by accident. But once I discovered, you know, the turning point was definitely Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. But then that kind of led into bands like Pavement, Superchunk, um, Built to Spill, Granddaddy, and Wilco, and just more 
uh, Flaming Lips, like loads, loads more. And once I kind of investigated that and fell into that, then I was like fully immersed in American indie music. And that was, I was kind of, you know, I was really hungry for that. It was, I felt like it was kind of like escapism. It all felt very romantic to me. Um, so I only wanted to make music like that after I heard it. And I did also like English bands, but they were always English bands that kind of uh, were inspired by American music. So, um, you know, English bands that fit fitted into that. Um, so, you know, like Teenage Fan Club, obviously, uh, My Body Valentine, etc. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like, I guess like later on, I guess like once I got kind of bored of listening to that type of music, then, um, then I started investigating um, English music more, I suppose. And so, yeah, I don't know, in terms of like where like my national identity kind of sits with my songwriting, I don't really feel like I think about things like in those terms. I kind of don't really listen to more one or the other. Um, I listen to a lot of American music still. And yeah, and a lot of English music as well. Uh, but I, you know, in terms of like London or the UK being like a part of my creativity, I, I don't really think about it when I write songs. Do you, do you see it in the music you're listening to? Like when you're listening to an American band or an English band, are there certain things, can you hear their identity in the songwriting? Or again, is it not too present for you? Yeah. Yeah, it depends. It really depends. Yes, like undoubtedly for like, you know, um, I guess with a few bands that I've just mentioned, actually quite a lot of them, like, you know, uh, Wilco um, obviously mentioned Chicago in their songs, very proud of, of where they're from. Uh, Superfire Animals, the same. Granddaddy, the same. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of bands that I was listening to were very proud of where they were from and their identity. I think the reason why I stay away from that consciously or subconsciously is because I'm not really very proud of where I'm from. Like, I don't really think where I'm from is particularly cool. I'm from North London, um, a very suburban area. And it was really boring growing up where, you know, where I grew up. And, you know, the closest kind of area of note was Camden, and I did used to go to Camden a lot, but music that is, you know, <laughs> that there have been artists from Camden who, who are really proud of being from Camden. And that's like the Libertines and Amy Winehouse. And I didn't really <laughs> want to make music like that. That didn't really kind of connect with me. Um, although I do, you know, respect what they were doing. But yeah, I think, I guess, you know, when I heard bands like, sing about where they were from, whether that's like Wilco talking about Chicago or Super Animals talking about Wales. It, it always just felt so much more romantic. I had no, I didn't feel like connected to North London or London in general. And I think that's just because I have a kind of love-hate relationship with London. It's interesting what you've kind of been saying much and you don't see that side to your identity manifesting itself in your music. Was that part of your reasoning for beginning your podcast last year? where you kind of look at your Jewish identity through conversations with other people. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I mean, the podcast was kind of, it was like an educational experience for me. Um, I was kind of um, trying to figure out a lot about myself and the podcast, it started at a time when, and you know, when there was a big anti-Semitic incident 
which was uh, happened with Wiley, the rapper. Yeah, it just brought up a lot of stuff for me. I realized that like I have been playing down my Jewish identity and um, I did grow up in a very Jewish environment, um, but I kind of, you know, rejected it. And I was trying to discover why that was and um, figure out why I kind of felt so averse to, to it and talking about it. And um, the more I thought about it, the more situations I started remembering and the more things kind of came to light about anti-Semitic situations in the past. Basically, like nothing like too overt, like I was never beaten up or anything, but like it's just like subtle negative things that happen when you reveal your Jewishness. So like people, if you say like, oh yeah, I'm Jewish, and then someone will be like, so what do you think about Israel? And you know, you don't want to talk about Israel or it might have nothing to do with it. And, you know, everyone in the room might look at you and, you know, await your opinion or whatever. Um, or like, you know, the worst example of, was, you know, would be someone being like, oh, so you like jewelry or something, you know, just like really ignorant. Has that happened? Yeah. Something that obtuse, really? Yeah, wow. I know it's crazy. Like it doesn't happen often, but then again, like I wanted to make sure it didn't happen often by just not talking about it. So yeah, I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to kind of stick out and like just situations like I had experienced just made me feel like I didn't want to talk about it anymore. So the podcast was more like an experiment for me just being like, um, okay, I wonder what happens if I start being really upfront about my Jewish identity and just start talking about it and talking about it with other people and, you know, finding out, uh, finding out about their um, Jewishness and their identity and how they connect to Judaism. So yeah, that, it was more of an experiment um, just, just to see what would happen. And it was such a valuable learning experience for me. Yeah. And it was an intense time. I mean, I was doing, that was such a lockdown project. Like I was doing so much during that time. I was doing the podcast one a week, like spent so long editing and I was making this album um, and I was making sourdough. I was making kombucha. I was just doing all of the stuff, but yeah, it was- You were running? Running. Yeah. Doing that as well. It was just like, I mean, my, my days were filled. I, I was making myself very busy. Did it help? with lockdown and that kind of environment that we've all found ourselves in? I would, I, it feels insensitive to kind of talk about the positive effects that lockdown has had for me, because if you're living with other people, if you have small kids, if you, you know, are living with someone not nice, then lockdown can be really unpleasant. Um, or if you're just like not, if you, you know, have trouble being or doing kind of creative hobbies or whatever, then yeah, lockdown will be really boring and at times really unpleasant. So yeah, it feels insensitive to talk about how much I enjoyed it, but I did really enjoy, I did really enjoy it. Um, it was sort of, for me personally, it was like the perfect thing, um, the perfect environment for me to kind of explore loads of different things, loads of different projects. But obviously, like I say that and completely understand and sympathize with people that didn't have such a good situation. Like I, I have a, a second bedroom in my flat where I can record music. If I didn't have that, you know, I would have found it significantly harder. But I do have that and I feel really grateful that I have that. So yeah, it did. It did help. It made lockdown a really, really uh, prolific time. I wrote 
loads and loads of music, a lot of which will not see the light of day. How come? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a, a, diff- a, a slight tangent, but um, at, the beginning, at the beginning of lockdown, my publisher um, at Subport Publishing um, said that they were getting their artists to write music that they could pitch to like TV shows just to kind of see if they could get music supervisors to lend a kind of sympathetic edge um, to any of their roster um, who were, you know, potentially struggling without touring. Um, So I started writing some music that was quite um, different, let's say, to what I would normally do. And then once I started, I, I was writing with my girlfriend, Anna, who I live with, and Anna's also a musician. Once we started, like we literally couldn't stop. And we started writing so many fun songs like, and it was so refreshing to kind of write in a style that was very different to what we would normally do. And yeah. And so then we had like, I think we wrote maybe between 30 and 50 songs that were all really, really good, but I don't know what we're going to do with them, but you know, they're on my hard drive. <laughs> she caught up on the album too, right? Yeah. And it was, it was partially for that reason, because we had never like written together before um i find it quite difficult to like write with people you know even in my co-writing situations in the past um i would always write the music and someone else would write the lyrics or vocals both parts would be done separately i've always found it quite difficult to write with someone so this was my first experience of writing with anyone and it happened to be with anna and it, it does help that we're together but like it was, it was a really good experience. It ended up being a really positive experience. And yeah. And so I think if I was struggling with a song on this record, it was always really helpful, like, um, to just get Anna's perspective on it. And, um, actually I can hear her coming through the door now, but, (laughs) but, um, yeah. And all the same, which was the song that was released today, not today when this goes out, but today now, um, (laughs) Yeah, Anna wrote uh, the vocals with me. And that this song actually started as a kind of pop song that we were potentially going to give to Sub Pop. And, um, and then I ended up liking it too much, so I just kept it for myself. It's got that kind of churning guitar, doesn't it? Yeah. It kind of gives it that momentum. That I guess you could imagine that, like what you were saying earlier, about it being used for sync in that way, just because it has that kind of spark to it. Yeah, I mean, I don't really... Um, it's, it's very, it's very different to like anything else I've done previously. And that's kind of why I liked it. Yeah. I, I never thought I could do something like that, but then it, it was the act of writing something completely out of my comfort zone that allowed me to kind of go into those weird territories and yeah, kind of explore like weird instrumentation and stuff. Was that the furthest out of your comfort zone you feel like you went on this record? I was definitely on this record. I was definitely less afraid than I ordinarily would be to to go into certain musical areas. And I think that was just because I was like so insular and I was going through such a intense creative period that yeah, I was I felt like I could kind of push those boundaries and not be judged. Cause I think I I felt this a lot in the past, especially with Yuck. And it, it's the case that a lot of bands find themselves in that when they write an album in a certain style or they start or they write a first album in a certain style or even a second 
they have to carry on making music in that style. Otherwise it would kind of alienate people or maybe even like, you know, it's just like a kind of a comfort zone. It's like, you know, that like this type of music creates, you know, a good response. And it's like, if I was to make a doom metal album now, then like there is a massive chance that, you know, it would get slated and no one would like it. And, you know, that's like, it basically it like, it can, has the potential to make you a bit risk averse. And yeah, like that's, I feel like that's only natural, but I think particularly when it came to like the third Yuck album, which I still do really like, I think I kind of got to a point where I was like, like, do I like the music that I'm making? I'm not sure. I needed a break just to kind of like figure out what it was exactly that, you know, that I wanted to do and, you know, why I was doing it. How does your approach change? How does the feeling that the process gives you change after you figured that out? I mean, I, I'm not sure how it changes, but like, I think, I mean, when, when I'm writing, like I really, I've gotten to the stage where like, I don't write if I don't feel like it. So the most unpleasant thing in the world is writing music. Well, for me, is writing music when you don't feel like doing it. Some people feel like doing it all the time. I don't really think I'm one of those people. You know, I can like sit with a guitar and like, you know, sort of play around a bit. But if I don't feel like writing a song, I find it really difficult to bring myself to do it. And if I want to, but I can't, then it gets quite complicated. And that's where, you know, writer's block comes into it, you know, so-called writer's block which I think is a myth um, where you kind of get yourself worked up and go into a downward spiral. It's important for me to write only when I feel I really have something to say or when I really want to, when I feel the drive to do it. And, you know, usually I know when I have that feeling because it's like, usually it's like, I can't sleep because I have like an idea going around in my head. You know, I record like the whole day and forget to go to the toilet or something like that. If I'm kind of like doing it because it's like, oh, uh, I should probably, I should probably like think about what I'm going to do next or whatever. Usually nothing good comes out of feeling like that. And I've had that feeling, you know, a few times in my career and it's never resulted in anything that I feel like I can listen to today. Is that when someone like the podcast could help though? When you have that other creative outlet that you can turn to and work on a little bit of songwriting? isn't quite coming to you at that time. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think it's really important for any creative person, whether they're a musician or whatever, is I think it's quite unnatural to work on one thing like forever um, without getting bored. If you can do that, great. But like, I really don't think that's something most people can do. I know like Gilbert O'Sullivan, who is an amazing songwriter, he has this kind of ethos, which is like, turn up to work nine to five at a desk writing songs. Like that is mad to me. Music is something that I do as like a kind of like release emotionally. Like if I did it every day for work, it wouldn't have any sort of emotional reward for me at all. But yeah, like I have a lot of other different things that I do, you know, that I have on the back burner in case I don't feel like doing music. One of the things which I've started doing recently is screen printing, but obviously that's a bit of an expensive hobby, but so is music as well. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like music will always be like the number one, but I have a lot of other kind of different um, things that I get on with if music 
doesn't feel like something that I want to do. Does that screen printing, does that tie into what you did for the record? Because you've done like illustrations for every song, right? Yeah. And yes, actually, like I'm like a designer. I feel like such a dick saying that. (laughs) I don't know why. It's just like one of those jobs that like you, I don't know. I just feel like a dick whenever I say that, but that is what I do. And yeah, I work at a music merchandise company. Um, But yeah, like when I do design work for, um, it's called Terrible Merch. When I do design work for Terrible Merch, it's like a different kind of headspace to the kind of illustration or graphic design that I do just for myself. And so that's kind of why I wanted to start screen printing because I wanted to do, I wanted to have like projects. Like I wanted to do a design and print it myself. The reason why I kind of got into graphic design in the first place was because it was after the third Yuck record. Well, I just broke up with my girlfriend, um, which was a long-term relationship. It was like eight years. And, you know, the band had just completely, like, it just broke me completely. Like I was, I was completely, (laughs) well, I was broke. I had no money and I was living at my parents' house and I just broke up with my girlfriend and it just kind of felt like everything in my life was just like, you know, had just crumbled down and I just needed to start again. So after kind of a few months of grieving, I I was like, okay, I need to kind of literally start from scratch and like pretend I'm (laughs) like in my early twenties or whatever, and just like literally start again. So I learned graphic design and just started doing like internships in London. That was like a really positive change for me. And you know, I think at that point in my life, like I just had enough of music. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. It was too like, it was too like triggering. Um, I know that's a really like annoying common term that that people use at the moment, but like, it's the only word, like I was in like therapy at the time. Music was just really bad for me at the time. Like, you know, the amount of touring, the amount of like, you know, um, relationships that had gone bad just from music. I just felt like I needed a new direction in life. And then like, if I wanted to come back to music, then I felt like I'll do it when I'm comfortable, whether that's in, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever. But, and it turned out it was only a couple of years. (laughs) Did you expect it to be so quick? I'm a very impatient person. Once I get an idea in my head, I kind of need to do it. I need to like complete it. It makes sense that it was so quick, but I was actively trying not to think about music after we finished touring for the third Yuck record. I was like, obviously like, you know, grieving the fact that I just got out of an eight year relationship. It did just so happen that the only thing that really got me through that was making Perfume, which was the first solo album that I released. Um, Again, it was just something that was unplanned. It was just like, I was just writing music, like to have something to do. And then, and then it just kind of turned into an album, but that's like, that was pretty much what happened with this album too, I suppose. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I remember around the time of Perfume, you spoke about how To Be Alone, which is a breakup song, was very much the catalyst for that record. And this time around, you said that Palindromes was the catalyst, which is a song about getting together with someone. There's a weird kind of juxtaposition slash parallel there. Yes, To Be Alone is a very kind of dark song. It's like a lot of references would only really make sense to, in those songs would only fully make sense to the person that they are, that that song is about. Um, and then it's the same with palindromes too. There are a lot of hidden references in there that reference the specific evening that <laughs> Anna and I got together. Those two songs like unintentionally 
symbolize dark and light in perfume. I was in a very dark place in my life. Like everything, you know, that I had and that I thought I knew was kind of uprooted. And with this album, it was like, a, you know, it symbolizes a very happy time, you know, um, getting together with someone who, who was my best friend. And yeah, and, and now we're together and it's a lot happier. And I think I'm in a much better place in my life significantly. And I think um, that's why I write albums usually. Like I write albums when, when there's kind of been a turning point in my life like a chapter in a, in a book. Um, that sounds quite cheesy, but like, um, like when something has happened, when like enough, like events in my life have kind of transpired that I feel like a kind of <laughs> like a sponge full of water, for example, it's like then writing music is like wringing out the sponge. Um, so right now I'm kind of, I'm, I'm wrung out. Um, <laughs> and yeah, an another album will come when, the sponges <laughs> full of water again. I feel like I'm taking the sponge metaphor very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> to come back to palindromes quickly, actually, did you find that quite an interesting concept to play with musically? This idea of something being reversed and being the same forwards as it is backwards? <laughs> One thing that would be really cool, <laughs> which is not the case, is if, <laughs> is if the song was completely the same forwards as it is backwards which is not the case but you'd have to reverse it halfway through halfway through you'd have to have that transition but everything goes backwards yeah yeah or like or another thing would be if like the riff the guitar riff was like the same forwards as it is backwards but i'm not clever enough to do that and i don't have enough patience but um palindromes was not something that i was like the concept of a palindrome is definitely not something that i was playing with musically more like, I guess, as a lyrical concept, I just found it quite fun and quite kind of um, metaphorical. And I think I came up with it when I was driving. Yeah, I don't know. I liked, I liked the word. I think a word has to be good to sing as well. It just meant something to me. It was nice. Like it was, I, I liked it because it was a way of writing a song about someone called Anna that, you know, doesn't mention her name. It just, but it is obviously about her. Like anyone who hears the song who knows us both immediately says like, oh, that's so cute. It's about Anna. That's what I kind of liked about it. Cause I don't think I would ever write. I mean, I, it's difficult to think of. I think it's the first time I've ever written like a, a quote unquote love song. So I didn't want it to be like a name. So this was, I guess it was a kind of way to make it about someone, but not at the same time. It comes back to that idea of it being what you were saying earlier on about the hidden references. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's there's a few hidden references in that song. I mean, there was there's there's a mention of wine um, because we were like, I don't know, we were very drunk when we <laughs> when we got together. We, I mean, it's it's a long story, and I kind of I feel bad getting into it now because it concerns other people. But it was a very kind of uh, it wasn't an easy situation. It was very messy because like she had just gotten out of a long-term relationship herself and I was really good friends with her ex-boyfriend as well so it was not it was it was quite um messy and um it didn't end up being messy like we're all still really good friends today and you know both of them play in my live band so we're all you know on really good terms but but yeah there's um 
it was it was such an intense situation. It was such an intense time, and I felt like I needed to needed to write a song about it to commemorate it. And Anna did the same thing, actually. Um, well, she wrote like nearly a whole album about it, um, and and then I produced that too. Um, so maybe, yeah, hopefully that will come out later this year, and maybe it will. This, maybe that song will make even more sense hearing another perspective. It was interesting what you were saying as well about palindromes and how you found that such a ripe kind of word to explore lyrically and there were so many connotations from it that it was very inspiring. Was that a similar thing for you with pedestrian? Did that word kind of take on a similar role? Yeah, yeah, it did. Sometimes it's really good having a writer's prompt, like a word. So some people you know, use a title as a kind of jumping off point. Um, and I do like doing that. I did write the music for Pedestrian before, before I had the title. Like when, usually when I write songs, I'll record it on my phone and just mumble like complete nonsense, like kind of, you know, like uh, kind of strands of, of lyrical phrases. Sometimes that's a good way of writing lyrics. Like sometimes you'll just come out with something and be like, oh, that sounds good. And then use that as a jumping off point. I think in this instance, pedestrian came about because I was running and I saw a sign that said pedestrians don't walk here or whatever, something referencing pedestrians. I can't remember what it was exactly. And yeah, I just thought that was um, a, a cool word. And I was thinking like, you know, what, what exactly are pedestrians and, and, and what, what does that word mean? <laughs> are you a pedestrian when you just go outside or are you always a pedestrian? Is pedestrian just another word for human? And you know, what, what are the implications of that? And then, yeah. And then I started thinking about how as humans, we're kind of, especially in London, we're kind of all very much living our separate lives. And then something happens that brings us all together. Yeah. We're all kind of walking alone in our lives. And I found that very interesting as a kind of prompt. None of the songs on the album are particularly about lockdown or coronavirus, but that being said, I don't think this album would have happened without it. So like, it's important to recognize that like this song is not about coronavirus, but it is about something cataclysmic that could happen to the human race and how that would affect like humanity and, you know, morality, uh, mortality. So yeah, like, and I was kind of thinking more of like an alien invasion or like a comet or something. So like, for example, like, you know, the lyric, like something in the sky, um, like you see something in, in the sky and it just kind of takes you out of yourself. But that being said, like, you know, I came up with the, with this idea, probably in the context of the fact that something unprecedented was happening to the human race at this time. Is that scenario you kind of described there too, where you walk past that side and you see the word pedestrian and suddenly your mind spirals and you're off? Is that a reflection of how your mind works on a daily basis too? Because most people would just walk past that sign, not by an eyelid, but you, it's such a tiny detail, but it suddenly becomes this massive thing that you can explore creatively and look at in the broader context of things. Yeah, I think so. I think, and I think this is also like what I do as like a designer. Like when I'm looking, when I'm out, in the world, like I've, I've trained myself to always look at things from an analytical perspective, like, because most things are like designed by a human, most things we see every day. So 
the, I think the way you get better as a designer is by like looking at everything and thinking about how it was made and the creative process behind it. I've gotten used to looking at things like from an observational viewpoint and kind of taking them in. And so that's, that's probably why I was paying attention to something as inane as a road sign. But, um, but yeah, like I think in terms of like using that as like a, a writer's prompt and like a jumping off point, I'm always, always looking out for something that could be inspirational from, from a musical perspective. Um, I always want something to write about. I always want some creative project to, to be getting on with. And so like any inspiration I can get, like from the outside world, anything that kind of like feels like, oh, that could be good or whatever, like um, I'll write it down or record it or whatever. Um, so I'm always like on the lookout for something. And yeah, pedestrian was what kind of came into, came into view like um, at that time. But yeah, like, um, I mean, it's, it's something that, that I'm always thinking about um, just because like, I'm, I'm kind of used to always thinking um, about where I can get like my next kind of subject or like creative subject. Yeah. With what you were saying about the way that you look at everything in design terms too, and you're constantly thinking about how is this made in the creative process behind it, would you ever look to natural things for inspiration in that context too? Like a tree or something? Because I was out the other day, actually, and I was walking in the, the woods and there were these great big oak trees that must have been there for a couple hundred years, and the pattern on the bark of them was so perfect and the way it was like diagonal, it almost looked like it was a piece of interior design mm. or something. Yeah. I mean, yes, definitely. No, it's important to, to look at everything, not just man-made things. Unfortunately, like in where I live, I mean, there are some really nice green spaces around where I live. I live really near um, the Lee River in East London, which is really, really good. It's really good for running, but just living near water, having access to like a river. I don't know. I just really like it. I like being near water. Centering. Yeah, exactly. Sounds really pretentious, but like going to the river. It's true though. <laughs> it, it's totally true. Going to the river, you know, on like a day, weekly basis or whatever, or daily. It's just so, it's just so nice having access to that. I really, really like it. But yeah, like I think there is, there is a song on the record, which is called The Weatherman. And that was inspired by a bottle of wine that I saw. <laughs> that I saw of the same name, but then that was kind of like a jumping off point for, I guess, how emotionally connected I feel to like the changing of seasons, which this year has been really rapid. You know, English people have a fascination with weather. We like can't stop talking about it. We're like fetishized by it. It's like roads. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How, yeah, definitely. But um, I think English people are, are obsessed with weather because we have very clear defined seasons and each one has its really unique character um and it's not like that everywhere else like i mean well in like la exactly yeah la obviously it's like pretty much the same all year round but then like in in new york as well like the seasons are so extreme and sometimes the the summer will be so unpleasant that you can't enjoy it same with winter like i've been in new york when like there's been like you know so like so much snow that it like covers like cars on the side of the road and stuff but i mean in this i feel like in this country it's like a, it's very temperate and like i feel like it's it's not extreme and it's you know the weather is in small enough doses that you can actually acknowledge it and enjoy it and 
I feel like the changing of seasons in this country is is really it's a really magical time. Yeah, so that's kind of what that song is about. But it's like they it's similar as well to Japan because in Japan they I, I think there's a lot of similarities between Japan and the UK in that they're both island nations. They both we both have a ridiculous um, obsession with formality and manners sometimes, and um, and we kind of have you know crazy nonsensical phrase phrases that we that we say that mean nothing, but we just say them because it's like social convention, like saying "bless you" after you sneeze, or you know stuff that's like rooted in like very very old English history, and and the Japanese have the same thing, um, but in Japan they also have like a really big appreciation for the changing of seasons like when blossom starts coming out it's like a huge national festival um and i love that and i feel like you know we probably couldn't get into that here there is there is potential we have the same fascination with weather there's potential for a national festival surrounding something as simple as blossoms coming out if if that if that happened in this country i feel like we would do it and then it would rain <laughs> yeah, that would be classic british we yeah. would plan it for like the first day of spring when everything's supposed to be beautiful and it would just be pouring the whole day yeah totally <laughs> that's interesting though could we see that to kind of come back to how we started this conversation could we see that as an example of your britishness manifesting itself in your songwriting you know what i think you're right <laughs> i think <laughs> i think i think you're absolutely right um yeah, although although it's very subtle, but yeah, I mean, you know, people talk about SAD, seasonary, seasonary affective disorder, I think, you know, people get depressed in the winter and feel elated in spring. Spring is a really important time because like, it's like rebirth. It's, it's a kind of a almost holy time in Japan because it symbolizes rebirth, you know, and I'm, I'm born in May as well. And you know, I don't know. I, I just spring for me is such a special time, and then and then autumn's too, uh, really special too because it's, you know, it, I guess it makes you think or consider your own mortality. Um, so it's it's special for a different reason, but maybe slightly more melancholy. Um, but yeah, it's all about the transitional seasons for me. Um, so yeah, and I think these seasons, you know, that they're, they're quite unique to the UK. So. So yeah, I think maybe that is a small, very small expression of of my <laughs> national pride. <laughs> when you say autumn makes you think about your mortality, is that just is that a time of year when you particularly seem to notice the time passing and you kind of see the leaves decaying and stuff, or what is it that's prompting that for you? Well, it is yeah, it's traditionally a time of of change and, and things decaying um, in the natural world. Um, but yeah, that's that's what autumn symbolizes. It's di- it's difficult not to think about about that. Um, but autumn's still a really special time. But it's kind of very contemplative. The smells in autumn, I don't know. There's like you can you can feel like the chill in the air, like just when winter you, is kind of around the corner. And I feel like that's a really special time. I've always really I've always really liked autumn and winter for that reason, just because you can kind of go into yourself. You know, you don't have to go out. Um, you can kind of just analyze yourself and just, you know, hibernate a little bit. And, you know, like in, in kind of Scandinavian countries um, where it never gets light in winter seasons, it's kind of, it really is a proper chance to hibernate. And yeah, it's kind of a lot of kind of sad things have happened to me during winter. 
you know, like notably like breaking up with my ex-girlfriend. So it's kind of, it represents quite a negative time, but also like now it's become quite positive because it's made me realize how far I've come in my life as well. I wanted to ask as well why you put the Weatherman at track five, because I have an understanding that you have quite a fascination with track five. And this idea <laughs> that it has the potential to be the best track and the best song on the record. Why was it that that cemented itself in that position on the album for you? Yeah, interesting. Yes, you're right. I do have a, an obsession with track five. I think <laughs> a lot of musicians like who are really like in love with the album as a format will notice how an album travels from start to finish. So like opening song is is so important. I, f- I feel like my favorite um, song by most bands is, is the opening song to my favorite album, probably just because it, it reminds me of the excitement that I feel, you know, getting ready to kind of start the journey for the first or a hundredth time. But yeah, like track five is really good because it's like often like dead center in the middle of the album. And it's like, you know, often like, the album has reached its climax at that point. Usually after that point, it goes down a little bit. And then last track is like, you know, often a chance um, to have something amazing as the closer. Um, not sure if I, <laughs> if I did that this time. But um, yeah, the, in terms of like The Weatherman being track five, I think that it wasn't really planned like that. So I have written albums in the past where like, it started with a song, like a jumping off point. And then I've been like, okay, that, that would make a good opener. Now I'm going to write a track five. Now I'm going to write, you know, a closing track or whatever, or like going back through my hard drive and being like, that song I wrote two years ago would make an amazing track three, you know, something like that. Thinking about things in those terms of like, you know, an album from start to finish. I know like, lo and behold, the second York record was written very much like that because I was really, I kind of built up this like fantasy of what an album was in my head, like a very, very mythical thing. I had several albums that I was listening to on rotation. One was Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco. And then The Soft Bulletin by Flaming Lips, Rings Around the World by Superfly Animals, and a few more. Keep It Like a Secret by Built to Spill. Yeah, I wanted to write an album like that. I wanted to write an album that, you know, made me feel the emotions that I felt when I listened to those records. But I think, I think that process kind of grew quite old to me. And I still, I still really love albums as a format, but it really depends. Like, it depends on, on the whole process. And sometimes, like, I think particularly for this album, like, I just, I just wanted to enjoy the process um, of writing rather than kind of thinking about things in such a not contrived, but, you know, kind of, I don't know, convoluted sort of way. Yeah. Instead of kind of thinking about things in terms of like their positions on the album, I just wanted to kind of like let the album take its natural course. So it just so happened that the weatherman needed to be track five because it made sense in that position, whether it is a track five song or not is not up to me to decide i feel like yeah i was gonna say i think it is in terms of what it's trying to do thematically Mm. because it's looking at this idea i know you were talking about the seasons earlier on but it's also looking at the fact that we never really know what's around the corner and there's no way to predict what's coming just like the weather you can have a vague idea but it's never quite going to plan out exactly how you anticipate 
that's such a strong concept that it feels like it works well in that position on the record. Yeah, I think so. It does feel quite central to the whole vibe of the record because like, I mean, one thing about this album is that like, I felt like I was able to look outside of myself for the first time, like ever in my writing. Perfume was a really insular album. I was speaking about, well, I was singing about myself and only about myself and everything was just in reference to myself and like, you know, what I was going through at the time. But with this album, I was like, okay, like, I mean, The Weatherman is still about myself, but it's written like from the perspective of someone else. So I was kind of trying different things, but like overall, um, I think this album is a lot more of a kind of inside looking out album rather than, you know, the kind of insular nature of what of what perfume was, I suppose. I read a quote from you in an interview previously as well, where you said that you try not to think too much about the future because plans always change and you never end up getting what you want. Have the last few years made you believe in that more or less, that idea? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think the last year and a bit has shown everyone that they can't make plans because stuff like this happens and throws everything up in the air. Um, when I was really young, I saw a Sonic Youth interview with Thurston Moore and he said that he never thinks about the future. <laughs> so because I was so young and impressionable, I was like, I'm never going to think about the future now. And that did work for a while, but... Um, He's also lying. <laughs> he was probably trying to be really cool. <laughs> and you know what? I was so sucked into all that. I completely believed him. I think it's important to think about the future a little bit and to try and make plans. But then again, also like, particularly like when I was writing Perfume, I, I got really into uh, stoicism as a philosophy. Um, I can't remember much about it now, but I it became like almost like, like a cult for me, like is the only way to describe it. Like I read all these books and like got really, really into this author called, <laughs> called Ryan Holiday. Who's like, um, I know that name. Yeah. He, he is kind of like, oh, this is going to sound fucking ridiculous, but he's kind of like a, almost like a business guru slash like stoic philosopher he, he used to be like very high up at American Apparel and then quit and then like basically like became the stoic leader. My colleague at Terrible Merch actually turned me on to his books and they, you know, I found stoicism when I really, really needed it because I was like obviously just going through my breakup and stuff. And so like, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and it was all about constantly kind of thinking about death, but not in like a negative way, but in a positive way. So, you know, and always letting things take their natural course and knowing that, you know, not worrying about things that don't, um, that you can't control. If, if there's like an obstacle in your life, then um, kind of using it to your advantage. It was all like stuff that I really needed to hear. You know, I think a bit of stoicism is really good and it's, it's all like really interesting stuff. But yeah, I think I, I took it a bit too... I kind of got sucked into it a little bit too much. But yeah, like I think generally speaking, like there are some things that I maintain and I think the way you think about the future is is a good one, just in the sense that like, not like in a negative sense, like our oh, plans never work out. So like you never make, so like why bother making them? But like more like, you know, whatever happens, happens for a, you know, a re not... <laughs> when, I, like, when I say a reason, not like some kind of like divine energy, but it just happens and you can't control it. 
So like, um, just kind of let things take their course and make plans. Yeah, definitely make plans, but also like, don't be afraid to change those plans if things, you know, don't go the way you want them to go. So I think that's kind of the best. That's what's been working for me recently. I don't plan. I have kind of like loose plans. I definitely didn't plan to make this album, but but it just happened. I don't have plans for another album, but I know it will happen soon in the future. I'm not really sure when, or it might not. Either way is fine. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. And what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code MOM.